Documents obtained by the Project on Government Oversight show the Small Business Administration forgave millions of loans it knew might be fraudulent. SBA issued the loans under the Payroll Protection Plan, a big element of federal pandemic relief. Joining me with details, POGO Senior Investigator Nick Schwellenbach. Nick, good to have you back. Hey, thanks, Tom. Good to be on. And you foiled for these documents, and I guess the scope of the misspending and the fraudulence happening under all of these programs is still coming into view. It's like rising over the horizon, hundreds of billions of dollars. But you looked at what the internal documents said to SBA with flags and markers on the different loans. Tell us what you were looking for, what you found here. Yeah, I want to be very clear that what we found is not definitive indicators of fraud. I want to say that up front. So what we did was we read the auditor's you know, analysis of the Small Business Administration's financial statements. We've read those for the last few years. And when I was reading the fiscal year 2020 auditor's analysis of the financial statements, the auditor said some very striking things, you know, in the bowels of this this audit. And just a quick question, it, the auditor meaning the inspector general of SBA? This was actually KPMG working under the auspices of the inspector general at the Small Business Administration. So KPMG wrote that there were about 2 million loans issued under the Paycheck Protection Program that had been flagged for various reasons, for dozens of different reasons, for further scrutiny. Now, what the Small Business Administration did is they hired a contractor and they flagged loans to sort of assist the SBA as part of the forgiveness process. And this began in August of 2020, and this continued for many months, even into 2021. But the bulk of the flags were applied between August and December of 2020. Then we filed a Freedom of Information Act request for this data set. We said we asked the SBA to give us all the data on all the flag loans. We got this massive, massive spreadsheet thanks to a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit. It had 4.3 million flags applied to 2.3 million loans. These flags were for various things. Some of them were applied to loans because they were above $2 million dollars. And they triggered this special review criteria that then Secretary Mnuchin said would mean that those loans would come under a full review. Some of the flags were for, quote unquote, large number of employees at a residential address. Some of them were for you know, bureaucratic reasons. Sometimes the loan recipient would supply a taxpayer identification number that didn't seem to match up with what that company should have had. And there are a whole lot of other reasons. Uh, you know, sometimes the flags were for a business that seemed to maybe exceed the SBA's relevant size standard, and there were many others. These flags were applied automatically, or how, who applied the flags? There was automated screening. What they did is they used various different databases to try to match what they had internally at SBA with Dun and Bradstreet data, with data the SBA had, sometimes with data that was at the IRS, although they redacted those codes, but we know that was one of the codes that was applied. So they did this automated screening to come up with these flags. And these flags were supposed to trigger a more thorough review that would involve a manual review. Sometimes it would involve going to the loan recipient and asking them to help resolve the hold code if there was a mistake. So some of the hold codes were indicators that maybe the loan recipient 
had a match with the Treasury Department's do not pay list, including for dead persons or for entities that were debarred from doing business with the federal government. Sometimes those are honest mistakes or a, a false positive. So just because there was a flag doesn't mean there was fraud or ineligibility. Some of the flags do indicate clear-cut ineligibility if they're accurate. For instance, one of the requirements under the Paycheck Protection Program was that you had to be an active business prior to February 15, 2020, to get one of these loans. And so 785,000 of these flags were for loan recipients where there were indicators that they were not an active business prior to February 15, 2020. We're speaking with Nick Schwellenbach. He's senior investigator at the Project on Government Oversight. So these flags were there. And what did you find, that they went ahead and forgave those loans despite the flags? Is that the issue here? As of last month, the SBA has forgiven, in full or in part, 95% of all PPP dollars that were issued, which is nearly $800 billion. The flags loans in our database represent at least $189 billion of loans. So there's some substantial number of loans that have been flagged that have since been forgiven. And in the course of doing our reporting, we read a newer audit by KPMG of SBA's financial statements. And in this newer audit that was issued late last year, the auditor, KPMG, criticized the SBA for sometimes forgiving loans without closing out the hold codes and for allowing its contractor to close out many of these hold codes and requiring no further action. But the auditor said that the SBA did not ensure that the contractor adequately reviewed those loans and made sure that those hold codes were properly closed out. So that prompted us to take a closer look at the data. And what we found was really interesting. An extraordinarily high percentage of these loans were closed out on just a handful of days. There were these bulk mass closeout of these hold codes on just a couple of days in late December 2020 and in January 2021. On four different days, 77% of all the hold codes in our database were closed out, especially on January 6th, 2021. 41% of all the hold codes in the database were closed out on that single day, 1.8 million flags. On one single day, a couple of days before Joe Biden was inaugurated on January 16th, 99.1% of those special review codes that were applied to the loans above $2 million were closed out. So we went to the SBA and we tried to get more information about what happened. Why were these bulk closeouts happening on these days? The SBA really didn't give us a lot of information. They sort of threw the past administration under the bus. They said we inherited a lot of problems from the Trump era that we've been trying to fix. We can't comment on the Trump administration actions, but they still threw the Trump administration under the bus and implied that there was some problem under the Trump administration. But thankfully, we have KPMG's criticism. Let me just stop you right there. I mean, most of this work is done by career staff, correct? There's the question of what did the contractor do and what did the career staff do and what did the political level know? Those are all very good questions. KPMG is saying that the agency did not properly oversee its contractor who engaged in these bulk closeouts of the loans. Now, we have a little bit more detail from the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee. They issued a report earlier this year. The IG looked at... 
Yeah. Well, so this is uh, the PRAC. So the PRAC was, you know, one of these new oversight entities created by the CARES Act in sure. 2020. Mm-hmm. And the PRAC is staffed by a lot of people from the IG community or former IG staffers. And the PRAC did its own assessment of the SBA's anti-fraud efforts involving the Paycheck Protection Program. And there are some interesting passages in the PRAC report that say that SBA directed its contractor in the fall of 2020 to create sort of a process called batch dispositioning, which is a (laughs) bureaucratic way of saying bulk closeouts of these hold codes to sort of speed up the, the closing out of these hold codes. These hold codes, if you follow SBA's rules to a T, if they were not closed, you were not supposed to get your loan forgiven and you were not supposed to get a second round PPP loan. And starting in mid January, 2021, which is the time period where most of these bulk closeouts happen, the SBA started issuing second round PPP. Do we know who this bulk release or contractor was? Do we know the company? No, I've been trying to find out who this contractor is. Uh, the inspector general wouldn't tell me. SBA wouldn't tell me. So to this day, I don't even know who this contractor is. And I guess the other question is now what happens? I mean, what's done is done. The money's forgiven. Can they still go back and review the flags and maybe try to claw the money back? So the SBA has created procedures that do allow them to go back and look at forgiven loans The inspector general has been somewhat critical of that and has said that trying to claw back money that has already been forgiven may prove challenging. I mean, if you think about it from the perspective of a loan recipient, hey, I applied for a loan. You said I was eligible. You gave me the loan. I applied for forgiveness. You said I was eligible for forgiveness. Now you're coming back to me and you're saying you want the money back. So the loan recipients that have had their loans forgiven do have a defense. However, if there is evidence that there was fraud, yes, through civil enforcement, through criminal enforcement, the SBA and the Justice Department can potentially get this money back. It will be more challenging in cases where there isn't clear-cut evidence of fraud or ineligibility, where things are more in the gray zone, because SBA sort of failed at both the front end before loans went out and at the back end when loans were forgiven. It may be challenging in many cases to get money back. Nick Schwellenbach is senior investigator at the Project on Government Oversight. Thanks for joining me. Good to be on. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Still to come, DOD is focusing hard on the cyber threats to weapons systems. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career 
at the FBI, and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did. You know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required and that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way, 
But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. 
I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.